Good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Galatians if you've got a Bible, and if you don't, we've got some nearby under the chairs. You can grab one, uh, and we'll be on page 972. Uh, Page 972, the series we're calling Centered, uh, as we work through Galatians, what we want you to be thinking about is what centers, what directs, what guides your life, what is uh, your North Star, what is your compass, what does that look like in the book of Galatians? The argument is that that Centering, that guiding, that compass should be the gospel, the the good news of Jesus. God become flesh, God uh, in Jesus, taking our sins upon himself, dying in our place, rising from the grave. That's our hope. That's what guides us. That's what empowers us to live a life for others and a life for God. Uh, As we look today at Galatians, the end of Galatians chapter 1, we're calling it a God-centered story. A God-centered story. We want you to be thinking this week and talking to other people about your own story and thinking through the lens of, is my story about me or is my story about God? Is God doing something in my life or is it just me? Is everything me? Is it all about me and what I've done and what I've accomplished? Oftentimes we think of our story through the lens of uh, maybe how much smarter we are than other people and what we've accomplished because we've figured it out and the other people, they're just a bunch of dupes and they don't know. Maybe we see our story through the lens of pleasure, and we're just looking for one pleasure after another. Life is hard, so we're just trying to find pleasure. We're just trying to pursue something to make life better, to make the pain go away, to enjoy that next high, whatever it might be. Or you might have a religious story. And even with religion, your story can be about you. Your story can be about how much more religious you are than the next guy, and how impressed God must be because of your religious zeal. And that's That's kind of where Paul is. Paul is someone who was religiously zealous. His zeal, his uh, intensity as a religious person was far beyond anyone else's. But he says he had to change. He needed God to intervene. If you're a Christian, your story should be something like this. I was wrong and God intervened. That, That should kind of sum up your story. Now, we all have particularities to it that makes it different, that gives it texture and flavor, right? We all have different... Uh, details to our story, but that should be the basic story there. Uh, We'll read verses 11 through 24. Paul is giving his biography here, and Paul's biography uh, first appears in the Bible in Acts chapter 9. So if you're a student, if you're wanting to go farther with this, go to Acts chapter 9. Then he retells the story a couple other times in the book of Acts, but that's where it starts, the conversion of Saul to Paul in Acts chapter 9. I'd also just, by uh, way of a side note, let you know that when you first read it, it's going to appear like it's not completely in sync biographically. But when you kind of chart it all out and line it all up, you can you can see that there's you know gaps here and gaps there. And sometimes in the book of Acts, Luke, as he writes it, will say, and then this thing happened, and there might be a two-year gap there. It's how they would tell the story. So it can be reconciled. But just wanted to warn you on a first reading, it might seem like, wait, this doesn't doesn't quite line up. But if you do the work you're willing to put in the hours, it'll line up. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So he's continuing where he was last week, saying this is not something made up by people. This is God's story. It's not our story. It's God's story. So again, verse 11 for, for repetition. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, this is Peter's other name, Cephas, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. What I want you to connect the dots with today is that as we look at Paul's story, we're going to be challenged to the reality that our story can can be the same. People can glorify God because of our story. As it says elsewhere, when they look at our good deeds, they praise our Father in heaven. That, That when they look at our story and look at the changes in our life, people can glorify God just as they did with the Apostle Paul. Let me pray for us and we'll look at this more deeply. God, we, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the story that you've given us and we thank you that you are writing a story with our lives. And God, we pray that you would help us to live out our part by faith, that we would see your grace at work in this story. We would see you as a good author, that you're writing this story well and we would consider it a joy that we're caught up in your work of redemption in this world. God, I pray for those that are skeptical this morning. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to receive what you have to say, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite authors is uh, an author that writes kind of like, it's kind of like kids' fiction, kind of uh, like Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter type stuff. His name is Indy Wilson. He's written some fantasy stories. I really like him, and there was a great interview with him a couple of years ago in a magazine called World Magazine. And in World Magazine, he was talking with the interviewer about how he really sees our life as a story. And that the philosophers always are talking about how, well, there's evil in the world, therefore uh, God doesn't exist or God's evil himself, right? I mean, that's kind of like a philosophical choice that's set up for us. And he said, but in reality, that doesn't make sense in a story, right? That wouldn't work in a story that you read, in a a book, in your favorite story, it it wouldn't make sense if you thought that way, right? He he references Hamlet. It wouldn't make sense for Hamlet to complain against Shakespeare in the middle of the story, right? That would kind of confuse things a little bit. It it wouldn't flow. He talks about Frodo and the Lord of the Rings, same thing. He says it wouldn't make sense for Frodo to shake his fist at uh, Tolkien and say, you know, what are you doing? Or I don't believe in you anymore. Or you're bad because this evil thing happened in the story. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't quite fit, right? He says, so the philosophers give us these choices. Either there is no author or the author's incompetent or the author's evil. And he says, maybe there's another option. He says, these are the philosopher's choices. He says, that's what they give us. And this is a quote from Wilson. But we look at Frodo, character in the story, and we can say, you idiot, it's a good story. The evil is here to be beaten. It's here to be overcome. It's here to be broken, so break it. Go throw the ring in the volcano. 
Don't sit there and look at it and say, there is no Tolkien. Because if there was, how could such evil exist? And so what I want you to see is as, as you get a bigger picture of God as actually the author of your story, paradoxically, that will drive you to live your part well. And a lot of times philosophers put those things at tension, right? Philosophers say, well, you need to have an inflated view of yourself so that you'll play your part better. And I think the Bible says exactly the opposite. The bigger you realize that God is, the more impressed you are with God as the author of your story, the more the Bible says, then we react with faith. Then we react with trust and we live our part well. We fight against the evil in this world. We don't just sit back passively. And so I want, I want us to wrestle today with that paradox. We see it in Paul's life. As Paul comes to grips with God, writing the story and in a different way than Paul wanted him to write the story, Paul begins living in greater submission to that author and living his life more fully, more sold out to God. This is a summary statement at the beginning of our section in verses 11 and 12. And the summary statement is this. It says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel or my story, this good news that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not man's story. He says, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed this story to me. I didn't make it up. I had a friend that used to say, it's too good to not be true. This is God's story. It's not our story. And the more we come to grips with God being the author of the story, the more we will live in in happy submission to what he's doing and want to make a difference, want to fight what's wrong in this world. So the first thing that we see is, is he starts off with the me story because that's where we all start off, right? We're all self-centered in the beginning. And so he starts with a me story. In 13 and 14, Paul tells the me side of his story. It's a me story. Look at verse 13. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So this is all the stuff Paul is doing. This is about Paul, right? And so when we tell our story, we usually start with me. It's all about me. As a matter of fact, I even had a book about me when I was a kid. Any of you had this book, the book about me? I've I've got a picture of it. I took a picture of it. Uh, We still have it. Here's a picture of my face on the cover of the book. You know, you have to like glue it on there from 19, whatever, 1979 or something. I think I'm like six years old in that picture. Um, wearing my soccer shirt. That was my favorite shirt, right? Um, and so you had this book about me where you would uh, have like a blank, you know, blank face and you would have to fill in the blanks, color in the hair, right? And this is what my hair looks like. You'd color it in. You'd color in the skin. This is what color skin my, I have. These are the color eyes I have. And you would, you would fill in and fill out the book about you. And that's where Paul starts here. He's saying, this, this is who I was. Starts out with a book about himself. And I would say, by way of application, when you're trying to share with someone who God is, it's okay to start with you, right? Because that's, that's the you your friends are talking to. So it's all right to start there. So if, if you want to move to seeing God as the author of the story, it, it's fine to start with, with yourself. Because you're the one talking. You're the one telling the story. And what I think is interesting is Paul gives particular details here that are going to help them to see God more clearly. And I think that's another principle that's helpful for us. When we're telling our story to someone else, 
Uh, you don't have, I'm, I'm, what am I? I'm going on 42 now. I'll be 42 soon. If I were to say every detail of my story, I mean, that'd, that'd take years, literally, right? If I were to just like a documentary, say on this day I was born, and then on the next day I didn't sleep very much because I was a baby, then the next day again I cry. You know, I mean, that, that's going to be a hard story to listen to. And so you can boil it down to the relevant details. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's talking about the details that, that help them to understand. Because what they were wrestling with is they were wrestling with saying, is Judaism plus Jesus the way to go? Or is just Jesus enough? And Paul is coming in and he's giving the details that are relevant to that story that they're wrestling with. And they're saying, hey, I did the Judaism thing. I know Judaism better than anybody else. Paul even gives his resume in Philippians chapter, is it one or two? But in Philippians, he gives his resume and he says, I was a better Jew than anyone else. I was the best. And I consider all of that trash. I consider all that rubbish compared to Jesus, to knowing Jesus. So Paul starts with the details of his story that are relevant. So again, remember, if if you want to tell your story in a way that honors God as the author of the story and as the most important hero of the great story, start start with you. It's okay to start with a me story, but start with the relevant details that help connect the dots to what God is doing in the world. He says, my former life in Judaism, I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. So he says, at one time I was pushing back against Jesus. I, I wasn't in with this grace, with this trusting in Jesus, seeing him as the Messiah, seeing him as our Savior King. I, I, I was pushing against it. I thought it was bad. I thought it was the wrong way to go. And that's where he starts. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And what I want you to see too is is many of you have grown up in a religious tradition. And I would say that that could be good. That could be an okay thing. And a lot of times if you've heard people give their story about their life, Oftentimes, these are the stories we like in in kind of this Christian subculture. We like the story where uh, I was an axe murderer and a drug dealer, and then I met Jesus, and then I changed, right? Like, those are the stories that sell, that are exciting. What I want you to understand is that your story is a story that God is telling. It's a good story. And if you had what you've been tricked into thinking is a boring story, because maybe you had faith from the first time you can remember someone talking to you about Jesus. And you just believed it. And you just trusted that Jesus was good. First time you'd ever heard about sin, I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness. You're like, yeah, okay, I'm in. And you were maybe like four or five years old. Don't fall for the lie that that's a bad story. That's a beautiful story that that God is telling. That's a beautiful story that God is writing with your life. And so it's an incredible grace. If you grew up in a family where you were taught to trust Jesus from your earliest days. It's a beautiful grace. So, so don't, don't throw your story out. You still need to tell your story. Again, a big application we have this week is we want you all telling your story. No matter how bad you think your story is, recognize that it's God's story, it's not yours. So start off with, with you, who you were, how God started that story, and, and begin to have eyes of faith to see that God is doing something beautiful in that story. Same thing goes for those of you that have had a lot of abuse and difficulty and sin and brokenness, um, that may be hard to recount. That may be hard to re-envision. It may be hard to go back through those details, but begin to have the eyes of faith like Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis that said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Or like Job 
the book of Job. It's a crazy story of suffering. And Job never really gets the answer. He, he just meets the author and he repents. But he's never, it's never really explained to him. We get a lot more explanation than Job ever did. Job just, just meets God and is like, boom, okay. God, you're good. You're the author. You're in charge. I repent. And so recognize it, that even if you've gone through great suffering, that God can be telling a beautiful story. And I know parts of that story may be too hard to even repeat. You don't have to tell every detail. You don't have to tell the details you're not ready to tell yet. But recognize that God is doing something with your life. And start with the relevant details that are going to help others to see what God is doing and that God's story is your story and that they go together. So the way I would say this in, in another way is if you're, if you're starting off with the me story, recognize that all of us struggle to trust Jesus in different ways. So even if you assented to the propositional truth of the gospel from your first uh, days of awareness, right? So say you're four, you hear the gospel, uh, you need to trust in Jesus to be saved. You're like, okay, I'm in, right? Even if you trusted in him from the first days, we all struggle to trust him in an ongoing, continuing way. So, so part of your story is not just when you first believed these facts about Jesus. Your story is a human, like every other human, struggling to trust in other gods and being lured away from Jesus, the one Savior that really will take care of us. So that's part of your story. So when you first had a concept of faith is not as important, really, when you talk about that struggle. The struggle is real, and the struggle is today. And so your, part of your me story can be, I still struggle to think that maybe I could be religious enough, like Paul, I'm so zealous, I'm advancing beyond everybody else, I know the Bible better than anybody else, I'm, I'm more righteous than anybody else, and so I struggle to think that maybe that's enough. And I have to be reminded that not only Jesus is enough, Maybe that's your story. Maybe you're continually lured away to, uh, to temptation, to the lures of pleasure. And maybe you had faith from your earliest days, but you still struggle to think that immediate pleasure is better than trusting in Jesus. And that can be a part of your story. I still struggle with this. I know Jesus is better, but I still struggle, and I'm still lured to these other gods besides Jesus. So help people to hear that. Help people to see that in your story. Recognize that Traditionally in our culture, what sells is the being lured away to sin and immorality. But for Paul, he was lured away by being religious. And so recognize that both of those things can be false saviors. Only Jesus can save. Being religiously zealous doesn't save. And pursuing pleasure doesn't save. Both of them bottom out, but Jesus can save us. Jesus can offer us hope. So Share that part of your story with someone this week. The, the next thing I want us to see in the text is that it's a grace story. So here's where grace comes in. Here's where Paul begins to have the eyes of faith. Before it was just all about him, and grace gets introduced here into the story. Now, I just want to warn you, there's some hard stuff for us here, but uh, I, th- I think it's going to help us. So look at verses 15, 16, and 17. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, I just have to pause there and say that that's mind-blowing, right? 
God set me apart before I was born. This is like language we see elsewhere in the scripture. It talks about predestination or foreordination. It's like this idea that God chose us, that God wrote our story for us. And I just want to acknowledge with you, if you're, if you're honest, I'll be honest for you, right? Maybe you're not ready to go there yet, but this bothers us as Americans, right? Because as Americans, we, we, we believe in our liberty. We believe in our own control. We believe in us writing our own story. So let's just recognize that. Let's just put that on the table right now, that that's hard for us to hear this biblical concept. It was probably easier for the Hebrews to hear than it is for us. They were much more accepting of this concept. So Paul says, When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, grace is the category for that, God's kindness, his riches to us that we don't deserve. God God gives us stuff that we didn't earn. God shows kindness to us. He's pleased to love us even though we sinned against him, even though we rebelled against him. Before I was born, he called me by his grace. Verse 16 says, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The Gentiles is just a word for the nations, the other tribes, right? The non-Jews. God was sending uh, Paul, a Jew, to proclaim the gospel to these non-Jews, basically to the bad people, to the dirty people, the outsiders in his tribal thinking. Paul sent him to preach to all those bad people, to go call them. But it wasn't just for Jews, it was for the whole world. And he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So again there in just those verses, he's hammering back to the argument that I didn't get this from these people, but I got it as a revelation from Jesus. Right? So their argument, we can kind of backwards reconstruct their argument. Their argument would go something like this. Paul uh, went to the seminary of the apostles and got the gospel but Paul flunked out, or Paul only did one semester in seminary, and then he left, and he's kind of changed it, and they don't approve of all the changes he's made. And Paul's trying to dismantle that argument, and he's saying, no, I got this straight from Jesus. And then when I met with them, we agreed, and we had the same from Jesus, Jesus-only story. But I didn't get this from them. I didn't even go to their seminary. I didn't even go to their classes. So he's, tr- he's trying to show that he didn't, really spend that much time with him, and that's what his emphasis is about here. But I want to kind of pick away a little more at this idea that he says that, that it was pleasing to God to reveal Jesus to him. It was pleasing to God to show grace to Paul, and that God had set Paul apart from birth. Because that's a hard idea for us, I just want to pick at it a little bit. One, I have an illustration here. Uh, this is one way we often think about grace, and this is a maze. Uh, any of you ever been through a human maze, like where you're trying to walk through one yourself? Some of you, not very many, or you don't want to admit it. That's okay. Um, I thought this one was beautiful. This is a maze made out of hedges. And often when you have a maze, sometimes there's towers. They're, they're not always towers, but sometimes there's a tower. And so if you're going through the maze, maybe your spouse can be up on the tower and they can direct you, right? And if you're really, uh, if you're a good American and you're bullheaded and strong-willed, you're going to try to do it on your own, Right? You're going to say, don't tell me. No, don't give me directions. I'm going to solve this maze myself. But if you keep running into dead ends, you might give up and you might say, okay, I need some help. I need some help from the outside. I need the, the skyward view. Can you, can you give me some direction? We often think of grace that way, right? That grace is God talking down. He sees the whole thing. We say, I need help. I'm stuck. Okay, I'll help you out. All right, cool. Everything's fine. And then we, we're on our way. Um, but what's amazing is that 
in the book of Ephesians, the picture is more like we wander around the maze, we die, and then we're like rotting in the corner. And God reaches down and gives us life and says, go this way. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins, and God gave us life. Now again, I, I already put it out on the table. That makes us uncomfortable, right? Because we want it, We want to have a little more participation in that. We want to have a little more involvement. Um, there's this great verse in John 6, 44, that says it this way. I'm going to keep making you uncomfortable, and hopefully we'll come to kind of a point of peace here after a minute. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, draw is kind of a nice word, right? Like drawing water, and it's kind of soft. And, but the, the Greek word is what you would use if you were dragging a prisoner into jail. That, that's what the word is. It's helco. Um, and so it's literally dragging someone against their will, like grabbing someone by the scruff of their neck. That's, that's what the word means. And so it's this concept that we don't even have faith unless the Father has kind of like grabbed us and turned us the other way and drawn us towards himself. So again, that, that's kind of mind-blowing for us to wrestle with. C.S. Lewis said it this way, and I like this quote because um, this, this concept of God's what we might call sovereign grace or his interventionist grace of God coming after us and giving us faith is sometimes associated with the theological camp of Calvinism, right? It's what's called Calvinism, and depending on how you grew up, that's either really evil or okay. Um, C.S. Lewis was not a Calvinist, and this is what C.S. Lewis says. This is about his own conversion. C.S. Lewis says this, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, this was his college, alone in that room in my college uh, where he was a teacher, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. He's talking about God. He's resisting God, but I could just feel him coming after me. And he says, That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and I prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. This was C.S. Lewis's uh, retelling of his story of coming to faith, that God had grabbed hold of him and that he was resistant, that he, he drug him kicking and screaming. So, so what does this mean? Well, hopefully I'll, I'll give a little resolution. There's, in, in our culture in American theology, there's a term that we think is really important. It's the word free will. Have you all ever heard the word free will? Yes? Okay, everybody's nodding. Mm, yes, comforting, right? Um, it's really central to, again, our American ideology of kind of being in control of our own lives. Now, I would say the Bible presses that hard with the concept of responsibility. Uh, the word free will doesn't really show up. It's more like a concept, right, that we use to make sense of things. And so the Bible really does say we're responsible. We're really responsible. So in some sense, God had set Paul apart from birth, right? In some sense, God's the author writing this story, and he's absolutely in control of all things, yet we're also responsible. And so here's some different ways to think about the word free will. 
What does free will mean to you in your concept? Here, here's one definition, that a person is not forced from the outside to make a choice, right? So a person's not forced to do something he doesn't want. That, that's kind of that's kind of rough there when you look at it through C.S. Lewis's lens, right? It, how would C.S. Lewis say that? I'm, I'm not sure. Here's another definition, that a person is responsible for his or her choices. Absolutely. The Bible is clear. We are responsible. So, so if you think the idea of God being the author or you think the idea of God um, setting us apart from birth or predestining or choosing people or showing people grace that kind of breaks in and turns our direction, if you think that means we're robots, that's not what it means. We're not robots. We are responsible. We have real choices to make. Another definition of free will is that a person is the active agent in a choice made. Yeah, I would say that's, that's true. The Bible says you're really making a choice. Even if God is intervening in your life and showing you grace and transforming your heart from the outside, we're still making choices. So that's still biblically true. And then the last two definitions of free will is that a person is free to do whatever they desire. Well, that one's kind of hard. Again, we, we say that, right? It's on a lot of posters with kittens on the ceilings of dental offices and stuff. But I don't know if it's really true, right? Like there's just stuff I can't do and I'll never be able to do, but I want to do it. And so we have, we have to wrestle with that. We have to be challenged by that. I can't fly. Guys, I want to fly so bad. I would love to fly. It would be awesome. And no amount of like staring myself in the mirror and saying, you can do it, Dave, you can do it. That's not going to work, right? If I was going to a cliff to jump off, you'd say, stop. You'd say, don't try it. Your will is not that free, okay? So, so we have to wrestle with our thinking of, of free will. And then finally, this is one that often Calvinists make a big deal of, is that a person has the ability to choose contrary to their nature. And that's one of the ways to think about it philosophically. Do we actually have the, the ability to choose contrary to, to what we want, right? Um, or, or in the end, are we always choosing what we want? So the idea that God's grace is relentless, that God comes in and, and comes after us, this, this grace idea in the scriptures, the, the idea that Paul talks about in Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and 2 of, of we're dead, but he gives us life. In a sense, this is a changing of our desires. Somehow it doesn't violate our responsibility. Somehow that doesn't violate that we are making real decisions. But God woos us in a way, or as John 6 says, drags us kicking and screaming in a way, so that we actually want him now. I didn't want him before, but now I want him. And, and the biblical explanation for that change of want, I hated God before and now I love God. The biblical explanation of that is grace. It's not that I'm the smartest person in the room. It's grace. And so that's the biblical doctrine of grace. We, we struggle with how that looks, right? And I know if I polled the entire congregation, I'd get like 10 different definitions of how these things work together. And that's okay. You don't have to a- agree with me to be a part of this church, right? We would say the central doctrine of the church is that Jesus is where our salvation is found. Union with him, the person of Christ who came to take our sin upon himself, who died and rose again, who conquered sin and death once and for all. That's the central doctrine. That's the important part. That's the part that Paul is fighting over here. But I also want you to see the the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that Paul's pushing as well, that, that there's a more global concept of grace, that there's a bigger picture here. And then I want you to see what the result of that should be. So if we're telling our story, we should make sure that it's a grace story, 
You may not articulate it the way that I have, right? You may not be comfortable uh, with my view, but if you're a Christian, there better be grace. There better be some grace there. There better be a view that you bring sin to the table and God brings goodness to the table. There better be an understanding of that because that is central. That is central to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 that just piles on, piles on. It's God's choosing. It's God's doing. It's God's wanting. It's God's loving. It just kind of piles these heavy grace concepts on. Then in chapter 4 is the first imperative that shows up in the book of Ephesians. And Paul says this, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So again, as Americans, we tend to think, well, if I think God's in control, I'll just sit in the corner, I'll just be couch potato, you know, drink beer, eat potato chips, and I won't do anything with my life. But Paul says, the more you think that God is huge, and the more that you think God is gracious and you don't deserve it, the more you're going to live a life worthy of that calling. So that's the biblical tension that we have to wrestle with, is is building up uh, me going to make me follow Jesus better, or is building up God and his grace going to help me follow Jesus better? And the Bible tends to say that the paradox is, the bigger you think God is, the more you'll live a life worthy of that calling. And so that's the, the story that we want to wrestle with as we tell our own story. Was there any grace involved, or is it just a me story? Is it just, I did this, and I was smart enough to figure this out, and um, I was better than the other people, and I'm more moral than that guy, and, or is it about God intervening? Is it about God revealing Jesus to you by grace? The last thing I want us to see is that it's a new story. It's, it's a story of change. We should all have a story of change. So Ephesians 4, 1, we should walk in a, in a manner worthy of that calling. God's broken into our life and revealed grace to us. We should turn around and go another way. I have an illustration of this from the swimming world. This is a flip turn. I've never been able to do this, but this is kind of an instructional. This is the same person, and it's the camera taking like four different pictures. So a flip turn is when you're uh, swimming in the lane, and then you do some kind of magic and flip around and go the other direction. Okay? I don't, I don't know how to do it. That's, that's it being done. You push off the wall, and you're now going in a new direction. You're not going that direction anymore, hammering your head against the wall. You're flipping and going a new way. And Paul says here that it's a new story, that he started going in a new direction. Look at verse 18. It says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. So again, he's minimizing uh, his being trained and taught by the apostles to maximize this story that's too good to not be true, this story that came from God himself even though he was in agreement with the story of the apostles it, it was he's trying to show that he didn't learn it from them and then mess it up and have to be retaught he's saying then in verse 21 then i went into the regions of syria and cilicia and i was still unknown in person to the churches of judea that are in christ uh, a lot of people still didn't know me right and then in 23 they only were hearing it said he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy this, he's showing the change in direction here it's there's newness. He was trying to destroy this, and now he's preaching this gospel, this good news. Verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. So the question is, is your life flipped around to some degree that points people to God's grace, 
and allows them to glorify God, to make much of God? Or is your story a story where people make much of you? Now, I'm not calling you to sin so that you can change direction, so that you can make much of him. I'm just calling you to be honest about your story, that even if, if you have externally righteous habits, that those are because of God's grace. And you need to tell your story in such a way that honors him and honors the turning of what God has done in your life, honors the newness of what God is working in you, that we are all are humans, we're all people that desire to be our own gods. We're all people that desire to glorify self, but the love of Jesus constrains us, turns us, so that we begin telling a new story. And the new story is about how good Jesus is, not about how good I am. So we want to live righteously. We want to live in a new way. We want to do things in line with what God is saying, like Paul is saying here, but we do it in a way that glorifies God. We do it in a way that makes much of God. As Ephesians 4.1 says, walking in a manner worthy of that extravagant grace that God has shown to you. Walking in a new way. Keeping the commandments, but keeping the commandments because of Jesus' intervention in your life, not keeping the commandments to prove how great you are. Honoring God, loving God, living a moral life because of what Jesus has done for you. Our, Our big application this week is that you would actually get with some other people and tell your story. I want you to start telling your story. And I want to give you a little encouragement here. Uh, One of my heroes is a pastor named Tim Keller. And he's a great evangelist. And one of the things he says is the best way to get better at evangelism, at sharing the gospel with people, is doing it badly. Okay? So the best way to get better at telling the story is to tell the story, even if you're terrible at it. Okay? Just keep trying. Just keep telling the story. And so I want to challenge you this week. We have these little handouts that we've made for you guys. You can get them online. Or you can pick up the paper handouts here that will give you a discussion guide. Some just short guidelines here of how to begin telling your story to someone else. You start out with the relevant details of of who you are and how God has intervened in your life and how he's done that and how you might continue to struggle to trust God versus trusting these other things. But begin to share those pieces of the story with each other this week. And I want to challenge you too, even if you're a non-believer, to share your story with someone else this week. First of all, if you're a non-believer and you're here with a bunch of kooky believers, man, thank you. We, we consider that a privilege that you'd be willing to hang out with us this much. Um, and I just want to challenge you to share your story as well. Share your story with, with another believer here so we could better understand maybe why you don't believe. And I just want to push you, challenge you a little bit. There's a, a saying I've heard before that's told kind of as a joke that there's two doctrines that an atheist believes. One is that there is no God and the other is that I hate him. Um, and, and that's supposed to be kind of funny, uh, and I don't mean any disrespect by that, but I just want to challenge you to, to question in your own heart, is, is the hate you might have for God based on some kind of other psychological reason besides you being purely objective? And I would just challenge you to consider that. And again, we want to we want to encourage a culture here where we're telling that story to each other, where we're sharing why we believe, why we don't believe, what that looks like, what changes that has made in our life. Um, I think the challenge for us as we tell our story is to make it not about us, we start with us, but to make it about God, who he is, what he's done in our life. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've intervened in our story, and we pray that you would use us. God, we want to be people that that love each other well. We want to be people that stand up for Uh, a just society, that we make a difference in our communities. And we know that the 
the trouble is not with you. The trouble is with us. So we confess that to you. We confess our desire to be our own gods. We confess our desire to chase pleasure instead of recognizing that ultimate pleasure is found in you. And we pray that you would help us to trust you and to love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.